to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. taking a break from Genesis starting next week. We're entering into an Advent series uh, called Hope for a Weary World. And so um, as we wrap up Genesis, the first part of Genesis, uh, it's kind of really, Genesis is really divided into two parts. There's chapters 1 through 11 and then chapters 12 through 50. 1 through 11 is really the idea of God building an entire world full of people and filling it with people. And then the second part, 12 through 50, is how God blesses the whole world through a people. And so we're wrapping up today part one of Genesis one through 11. And there's been a lot of stuff as we've gone through and we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, and just so remember, after the service, we're having a Q&A downstairs. There will be pizza and there will be salads and things for those of you who are either trying to eat healthier or don't like gluten or cheese or red sauce. There's, there's lots of options, okay? And so I want, I want you to come downstairs uh, after the service, enjoy that. Ask all your really strange Genesis questions. Maybe there's that burning question you've been thinking about from one of the chapters, one of the passages. Um, and also you can actually start to begin texting those in. It's easiest if I have those ahead of time. Um, we'll get some paper and some pen downstairs to write those down as well. But if you'll text to 617-286-2006. Again, one more time, 617-286-2006. We can start getting some of those questions together uh, as we do our Q&A downstairs. So again, just go straight downstairs after the service and we'll jump into that Q&A. But kind of to recap the first part of Genesis, we looked back in Genesis chapter one and two at creation. So creation is the idea of God creating the world good. Uh, he created it with purpose. He created it with meaning. And it really shows us that the entire book of Genesis, the entire Bible, life itself, is ultimately about God. The Genesis is not meant to be a science book. It's meant to be a declaration of who God is, what God has done, and that God is one who is glorious and that we should praise him and worship him. And so we see this idea of creation, God creating all things good good. We get into Genesis chapter 3, and we see how the world falls apart. Adam and Eve enter into sin. They disobey God, and we are seeing the, that play out throughout human history. And so that began in chapter, chapter 4. We saw the fallout of the fall. Uh, Cain murders his brother. It spirals into just more and more wickedness. Lamech marries another woman. Like, it starts to get really strange. Uh, this idea of polygamy, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so we see this happen leading up to the flood, and God says that because because the, the, the intentions of man's heart are evil continually, always, that he was going to wipe out humanity except for Noah, and he was going to create a new humanity through Noah, but also this picture of salvation that we see through the flood, that the flood is both judgment and mercy, that anyone who will humble themselves and trust in what God has done for them, the salvation that God has provided, can be saved. And ultimately, we see that Jesus is the better Noah. Jesus is the better ark who brings salvation for us. And so as we looked at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we, there are two things that have become really clear. One is people are messed up right? Can I get an amen? Amen. People are really messed up. And, and we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. And, and the core of each of these mistakes we see through Genesis 1 through 11 and in our lives is that we want to be like God. You know, the eating of the tree of the knowledge of, of, of good and evil was not just about eating some fruit. It was this idea of saying, God, I know better than you. God, I know best. I get to define what's right and wrong. 
And so every power grab we see here, every, uh, every t- uh, testament to greed, all the evil that we see really boils down to this, that we want to be like God and we are prideful people. And we, we don't evolve out of this. We're not just getting better. We see in Genesis 6, 5 and 8, 21, that man is still evil, that the evilness of man and the evilness of humankind bookends the flood. And so we're going to see this even this morning, that even as they've come out of the ark with Noah and with Ham, things just continue to get a whole lot worse. But the, the second idea is that the story is narrowing in. The story is continually narrowing in from all people down to a people, a people who would bless the world. And so the last two and a half chapters we're looking at here shows us God's plan for a diverse humanity that is ultimately going to be blessed through Abraham. And when we look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, it can seem a little confusing because we read this after looking at 10, 1 through 31 and think, man, like everybody seemed to be getting along. Everybody's, you know, no one's turned a meeting into, you know, that could have been an email. No one's done that. No one's done that at work. Um, Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's meeting their, it's not that. Why would God scatter people? Why would he confuse their language when it seems like they're on the same page? What we need to see is that Genesis 9, verse 18 through 11, verse 9 is really one literary unit. This is one story, and I've said this a few times before, the chapter headings and the verses sometimes can get us a little confused. We make some arbitrary, you know, break it up a little bit, but this is one idea. This is really artistic prose. It is a story. It is is history. It's something that actually happened, but the arrangement of that story is a little bit more like a movie than it is like a chronological telling. And we see this because we see that it's arranged in such a way to make a point. I just got done reading Where the Crawdads Sing. It's a fantastic book. Love that book. If you've read the book, the first third of the book is incredibly slow. It's like they're hanging out in a, in a, in a, you know, in a marsh and they're talking about shells for like 120 pages. You've got to be committed to this. Well, finish that and watch the movie and that would make a really boring movie right? You're sitting there going, okay, we've looked at the same shell 73 times. What they do in the movie is they take the end of the movie and bring it to the front and then begin to tell how they got there. That's a little bit of what's happening here. Chapters 11, uh, chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 actually comes after, or sorry, becomes before chapter 10 verses 1 through 32. Chapter 10 is the result of chapter 11. And so what we see is that God's design for humanity is this cultural ethnic linguistic diversity. That what God actually wanted was a diverse world where we see a multitude of cultures and ethnicities and languages all glorifying him and that human sin actually hinders that from happening. So let's look at this morning, first of all, how Noah is the key to this, how God's design for human diversity works, and then lastly, how God redeems us through it. The first idea this morning is that Noah's family is the root of human diversity. So here we are after the flood, and God begins to repopulate the earth through Noah and his family. We see in chapter 10, verse 1, it's through his sons. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were born to them after the flood. So God begins to repopulate the world through Noah's children. And this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows us that all mankind is one. All mankind comes from a a common source. Chapter 9, verse 19 tells us these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed, meaning that they have a common heritage. 
They have, they have a, a common heritage, and out of this, we see a multitude of nations, languages, cultures, and skin tones, all equally uh, made with dignity in the image of God. But they're one humanity. Now, it, chapter 10 doesn't list every nation that's ever been on the earth, but it does communicate the idea that this is everyone. Now, as you read through this list, you know, you probably haven't heard of most of these, but you don't know who sang the number one song of the 1920s either. It happened. It doesn't matter if you know who they are or not. Um, but if you were to do a little digging and we had enough time, we could go through every single one of these people and begin to look at their history. But the number of people is what's important. The number of nations and people groups that's mentioned is really important. It's the number 70. There are 70 nations or people groups listed in chapter 10, verses 1 through 31. This is often what's been called the table of nations. The number 70 in Hebrew literature is the idea of completion or, complete, or completedness. This is to say that this encapsulates all the people who've ever lived in this group. And you notice through here, you see nations, you see political groups that are formed, and you see people who would eventually become a nation. So that's how most towns get named, right? As someone moved to that town and they named that town after that person. I grew up in this tiny little town called Clay in Alabama, outside of Birmingham. And just north of us, there was a town called Palmerdale. And so Palmerdale was the Palmer brothers who moved there and they started a town. Well, the, the Palmer brothers got into a fight and one brother said, forget you, moved right next door and started a town called Rimlap. If you look at Rimlap, that is the word Palmer backwards. So we are some, we are some petty people. So we see this idea of one people, all nations coming from this one people, but also we see that ethnic diversity is by design. It's not sinful. It's not that people were sinful, so God broke them apart. But if you look at, the, at Noah's sons, you actually see it's baked right in. Uh, the three sons represent three different skin tones. Tony Evans is brilliant. He talks about this. He says that the name Ham actually means dark or black. The name Japheth means bright or fair. And Shem means dusk, or really the color of kind of caramel or brown. What you see in Noah's genetic code is the skin tone of every single person who's ever been on the planet. From the, from the, from the palest Irish guy to, to, to a deep, dark black, every single skin tone has value and worth and dignity. And so from each of these sons, we see all people come forth. Japheth, we see in verses three through six, we see the people from Greece and Europe. The word Gomer, actually, we believe that's the Welsh people. And if you look through, I'm not gonna go through every single one of these just for the sake of time. If you look at uh, chapter, uh, verses three through six, you see people from Scandinavia. You see people uh, from Rhodes and Cyprus and Greece and all along the Mediterranean Sea, all along the coast, you see people groups that formed from this. If you look at Ham's lineage for verses 6 through 20, you see the people of Africa and Assyria. There's an obvious one here. Egypt is Egypt, but Cush, we believe, is Ethiopia. Put is Libya. And you see the people of Canaan, which represents all across Africa and into Assyria. We see the same with Shem. We see people across the Middle East, all across Arabia, the northern Mesopotamia, Syria. And we believe that if you were to look at Shem's line, you see people from Israel, from Iran, Yemen, and maybe as far east as India. And what we see out of this beautiful collection of people is a diversity within the unity of being human. And that this is something that God desired. That God desired our ethnic diversity, but also our cultural and linguistic diversity too. 
There are different languages and cultures here, and these different languages and cultures and ethnicities are what it meant for them to be fruitful and multiply and glorify God in all the earth. And I believe this is a natural progression of what it means to be human. Uh, If you're looking at sociolinguistics, language develops over time, and it develops in community, and it actually differentiates itself into different dialects and ultimately different languages if given enough time. And the way you actually see this is even in just how you look at English. And so if you were to compare Old English versus Middle English versus Modern English, um, they look like completely different languages. You know, Old English looks a lot more like German. So there's a common root there and it breaks out into something new. So the word hello in, in, uh, in Modern English, Old English would have been what's up, hello, which sounds a lot, a lot like what's up, y'all. So, it really, so there's, there's a common link there. It's, a, it's a, something completely different. We see the same thing when you get to Middle English, a more formal, it's more formal. Old English, actually, there was no word order. You know, we go subject, verb, object. It was all over the place. Middle English actually began to bring some of that together with a little more order. And a greeting saying hello to someone in Middle English would have been something like godai or good day. So we begin to see how language forms over time. And so a multitude of languages, cultures, and traditions are beautiful as God fills the earth with his people. And what we can do as a church, as as Christians, is we have the unique opportunity to acknowledge those and honor those and celebrate those differences as a beautiful picture of the tapestry of God's people that he's called us to be. So how can we embrace God's good design in this? One, I think, is just honor. We can honor each other's people, each made in the image of God. We can be curious. We can ask really good questions, not looking at someone from a different culture as our repository for all the answers about what it means to be from that culture, but do some research, read good books, listen to podcasts. We can have humility. Our, our unique, our specific culture is not, it's, it's not everything. There are a multitude of viewpoints and, and just a radical other-centeredness that we can have be so other-centered in the way that we pursue each other. So we see this unity of humanity and diversity, but we also see how Noah and his family sowed human sinfulness into every people group on earth. There's not a single people group on earth who, is, who, is, who avoids being sinful. And we see this in, from the very beginning in chapter 9, verses 18 through 29, with a really strange story. I'm not going to lie, this is a weird story. Um, and for Western ears, especially, we're looking at this and we're going, okay, well, what's, what's the deal here? You know, how, what did Ham do? Like, what did, what did, why did Canaan get in trouble? Like, why is Noah so mad about this whole thing? But if you look at verse 20, we begin to see the story of Noah, who began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So on one hand, he's fulfilling his creation mandate. God wanted him to cultivate the earth and be a gardener. And so he begins to plant a vineyard. Verse 21, we see that he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And so he takes of the fruit of the vine, gets drunk, and in doing so, ends up putting himself in a shameful position. And as we look at this, this, and this is one of the hardest parts of the Bible to interpret because it's what exactly happened here. Because in our Western culture, we see something like this and we think of a prank show. You were to steal someone's towel and they run out of the bathroom, like that seems like a prank. But uncovering nakedness, and this is something that has mystified interpreters and mystified scholars, because uncovering nakedness can mean a multitude of things. It can mean sexual relations. It can mean sexual abuse. It can even mean castration. It can mean adultery. There's, There's a number of things that it can mean. But I do believe if we're looking at it just 
the best we can interpret it, I actually believe that it means that most likely Noah was drunk and Ham shamed him. And to our Western ears, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you're in an Eastern culture, to shame your father in some cultures is worthy of death. He shamed his father in such a way, he saw him drunk, he, he, he sees him, he mocks his father, goes and tells his brothers and shames him. And so Ham sees his father in a vulnerable position and instead of redeeming his honor, shames him by mocking and telling his brothers. And there are some traditions that believe that maybe he even took his father's cloak and showed it to his brothers as proof. But we see the difference in Shem and Japheth in the verse 23 where it says that they took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. They went through great lengths to honor their father. They went through great lengths to not further shame him, but to cover his shame. And we see how this mirrors the act of God in the garden at the fall, right? Because what did God do immediately after Adam and Eve sinned? He killed an animal, took its skins, and he covered their shame. And when we give people the gospel, we have a way to be able to cover shame. Not just say that people's guilt has been taken away, but also your shame can be covered. We see how Noah reacts in verse 24. He says, when Noah woke up from his wine and, he, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be, he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord and the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And so the question is, is why not Ham? Why not, why not just curse Ham? Why, why, why curse just Canaan? We need to understand that this is Noah's wish, not a declaration. Noah doesn't have power to just make this happen. It's a little bit like if you've ever read Romeo and Juliet, Mercutio's dying, and he says, a plague on both your houses. He wishes that upon them, and it does end up being prophetic. He's not able to make it happen. He wishes it, and this is what Noah wishes upon Ham's family through Canaan. And as Alan Ross says, Noah was not punishing Ham's son for something that Ham did. Noah used the occasion to prophesy how the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites, would act. Likely, this is Ham's character being passed down through Canaan. A man who would shame his father, something so shameful. And it's this, this picture, this prophecy of how his descendants would act in incredibly wicked ways. But note here that the fact that he limits it to just Canaan is gracious. He could have done it for all of Ham's family, but he does it through only one of Ham's four sons. And this passage has actually led to some horrible theology. Some absolutely awful theology. If you're not familiar with the curse of Ham, the curse of Ham was a early American theology about, uh, about Ham that was used as justification for the slavery of Africans by white slaveholders. They used this passage and just ripped the Bible to shreds. Honestly, had to read it out of context, had to rip this out as a justification for something so evil and so awful this is an absolutely horrible heresy, but we don't see it going through Ham. We see it going through Canaan's line. And in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 10, if you were to trace the Bible and look at all of these different nations, you would see these are all the people that the nation of Israel had trouble with. You see the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Hivites. You see later, we'll cover this in a few weeks, or, about, or in the new year, about Sodom and Gomorrah. You see all of these different people that they had trouble with who had 
evil practices from pagan worship to, uh, to a horrible treatment of women all the way to child sacrifice. So what are some of the, the takeaways that we can take from this idea of Noah being the, the root of human diversity? The first is that all people have value because we have a common ancestry. The modern conception of race uh, was a social construct to say that some people were lesser than. And so we're all human. We all have value. We all have a, a common ancestor with a beautiful ethnic diversity. And what this means is we have a common blessing. We can each of us explore the blessings that God has given us. As we looked at last week, that God has given us a world to be fruitful in in order to point us towards him. But it also means that all of us are responsible to God. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, there's a God who created the world and you owe your life to him. Romans 1 tells us that we have an oughtness in our souls because simply we were created by him. We know by the fact that we are created in this world that there is a God. The second idea is that ethnicity and language matter. We don't want these to be things you have to check at the door at City on a Hill. We want this to be a place where ethnic and cultural differences are celebrated as beautiful And then thirdly, is that all people are sinners, but also all people can receive grace. Well, the Canaanites were due judgment as nations. There were individual Canaanites who found salvation. Look at the story of Rahab. She was a Canaanite. She found salvation through her obedience to the Lord. There are several Hebrews who fell away. You only enter in through God's grace. So we see God's good design for this through Noah, but it didn't happen easily. The second idea is that God's intervention caused the fruit of human diversity. Again, Genesis 11 is not human beings trying to work together. They're not, it's not that they have differences and now we're all on the same page. It's not a Disney sports movie. It's not the Mighty Ducks 2. It's not like we all come from these different places and we got to have teamwork and then Gordon Bombay nods and you score. It's not that. It's what Miroslav Vol says. He calls chapter 11, verse 1, totalitarian racism. It's pretty strong totalitarian racism. Why? Because in order to achieve the whole earth having one language and the same words would would require incredible top-down control. It's not natural. It would take incredible force to keep people on the same page. And we see who did this if you look at the middle of Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. It says, Cush, father Nimrod, yes, Nimrod, um, He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we see what happens in the Tower of Babel comes back to one man, one tyrannical man. And you look a little bit further into chapter 11, we also see that he's responsible for Assyria and Nineveh. The entire book of Jonah is built around this. So one man is causing a type of oppression on people that is restricting diversity from occurring. And we see this man who's incredibly ungodly in a city that's being built on incredible ungodliness, hindering diversity from occurring, but it's also a testament to human pride. Because what did they want to do? They wanted to build a city of their own. A city is a testament to self, a city to say, God, we don't need you. And you see this in chapter 11, verse 2, because what direction are they going? They're going to the east. The e- going east in the Bible like this is a picture of leaving the presence of God. Because what did Cain do? He went east, 
leaving the presence of God. Here, we see Babel, or we see Nimrod and all his people going east further from the presence of God. In chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, we see how this city is built. It said, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, cities aren't bad things. Cities, cities can be really good, but cities can also be a place to abuse power, and they can be a place to find your identity. They were trying to find an identity of their own making, but here's the problem. If you come to a city like Boston without an identity, it will consume you and remake you in its own image. And we see that they're being consumed by this idea of power and they're doing the same thing as Adam and Eve. They're doing the the same thing as Cain. They're doing the same thing as the mighty people in Genesis chapter six. And we do the exact same thing ourselves because we're saying, look at what I can build. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can create. So everything that we do, not to the glory of God, is an achievement to prove that we're in control, to make a name for ourselves. So in what ways... Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Maybe you're trying to do it through your career or your education. You say, if I can reach this particular level, if I can do this certain thing, then everything's going to be okay. Maybe it's the image you want to have before other people, the status you achieve, the the number of zeros at the end of your paycheck, the, the honor you have before others, how good of a person you could possibly be. Notice the direction that they're going. It says the top is in the heavens. They wanted to be like God, but in doing so, they couldn't avoid building toward him. See, everything we do is is ultimately misdirected love. Everything we long for is ultimately something that only God can give us because badness is just a perversion of good. C.S. Lewis says, but pleasure, money, power, and safety are all, so far as they go, good things. The badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong method or in the wrong way or too much. Goodness is to speak itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. Evil is a parasite, not an original thing. But also look at, look at what God does. I actually kind of laugh. If you read chapter 11, verse 5, you, you can't help but laugh because it says, And the Lord came down. Think about that. They were trying to build a tower into heaven, and what did God have to do? He had to come down to it. God came down to the tower. It's almost like he's almost like he's saying, it's like it's like a child going to a bodybuilder and saying, Look at how big my muscles are. Whatever we can build, no matter how high we think we build, is nothing compared to God. God has to stoop down to us. And he stops them in verse 6. Lord said, behold, they're one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. He's stopping them before the damage is done. He's not talking about they are going to achieve great things. You know, this is why you don't let children play with power tools. They can achieve a lot of things, none of it good. But also we see God's grace because what did God not do? He didn't destroy them. Last week, we just talked about how God promised that he would never destroy them in that way again. What does he do? He simply just disperses them. God judges them, but the dispersion is not the judgment. He's actually making happen what they failed to do. They were disobedient to God, but God's will cannot be thwarted. 
And it's the same for us. When you think about what God has called you to do, God has called you to live, who God's called you to share the gospel with, it's not that God, you're thwarting God's plan. It's not like, you know, God's going to say, oh, well, you know what? She didn't do that, so the whole thing's off. That doesn't happen. But what happens is we miss the blessing of being used by God for in his plan. It's still going to happen. And what, so what, might, what blessing might you be missing out on because of disobedience? So we see this is a huge deal to God, but we need to understand why this is a huge deal to God. See, this is ulti- God's ultimate plan for human diversity. Where is this leading? We see it narrowing to a people. We see it narrowing to Shem's line. It narrows down to Abraham's family, which we'll cover in January, who's going to be a father to a people who'd bless all people. But we also see it narrowing down to one person. And it narrows down to Jesus. God has kept this entire line of people alive to bring one person into the world. God taking on flesh to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve and to raise again. And what Jesus does in his coming through his blood is he covers our shame like Noah's shame was covered. We see God who sees our pitiful attempts to try to be good enough or strong enough or moral enough or to achieve things on our own. And God came down to us and took on flesh that he paid for the sins of people from every nation to call together a multi-ethnic family in him. And I want you to see how beautiful this is that God does this through his church. He now sends us to make this reality. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The word nations there is the word ethne, which means people, all peoples, all tribes, all languages, all cultures, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we see Acts chapter two, where God reverses the curse at Babel where it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice it wasn't all people understanding one tongue. It was the gospel being spoken in many tongues. The gospel is not just for one type of people, but for all people, languages, cultures, to the glory of God. So that one day we'll all stand around the throne and as the Revelation 7 vision tells us, that after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't think that's going to be happening in one language. It's going to be happening in a multitude of languages. And it's just like music. I was just talking to Matt how that second song was saying was so beautiful. There's three-part harmony. I don't know how to spell harmony. Like it's, you know, I I don't know how to do that, but it's beautiful when you hear it. I believe we're going to hear this, this cacophony of sound, this cacophony of noise, a multitude of languages singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what do you need to do? How do you need to respond this morning to this text? The first is if you're not a part of God's family is to become a part of God's family. To, to trust Jesus as the entryway into this. No matter your, your culture or your background or your language, there is access for you because of Jesus. And it's, sim- it's simple, it's trusting Jesus Christ alone. The second is to embrace a multicultural life. What does it look like to, to honor others and care for others? And we have that opportunity within our church to, to be a people who serve and love one another. 
Thirdly is to take the gospel to the nations. Who is God putting upon your heart to share the hope of Jesus with? Maybe it's inviting someone to lessons and carols. Maybe it's, it's actually sharing what Jesus has done for you. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe, maybe someone at work. Maybe, maybe God's putting a burden for you somewhere around the world. I want us to be a church who sends people to the literal nations. One of the reasons that we have a partnership in a place like Iceland and we give money to missions is I pray that God stokes that within us, that we become a sending church. We begin to send people to the nations. How God might be, how might God be stirring in you this morning? Let's pray. 